Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us, and then you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers in the fields grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. Is that how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into fire? Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So long ago in my ministry, I made a vow that I would never preach what we in the profession call a Saturday night special, which is a a sermon that you've written Saturday night. But I... I had, a, I had a whole sermon prepared on the text that Sarah just read. And then I spent all week praying. I mean, just troubled by what took place in Evalde, Texas. And I reached the decision last night. The sermon I had prepared, I had to kind of let that go. And so this morning you're getting a Saturday night slash Sunday morning special. And uh, I hope it'll be okay. Um, what it lacks in polish. I hope it makes up for in just genuine heart. This past Monday and Tuesday, we celebrated graduation for our children's learning program. And and the way it works uh, is is always one of the pastors, associate pastors, takes one of the days, I take the other. So on Tuesday night, the same day as the shooting, I was here as part of the CLP graduation. And in that particular class, we had or that particular ceremony, we had three graduating classes. So 30 plus children who all came down the center aisle waving little American flags as we sang, uh, uh, you know, your grand old flag. And they all lined up in the same places where these chairs are right now. And then when they did, they, they sang a few songs and the parents, you know, all, all crowded around like paparazzi, like they filled this, this sanctuary and there's, you know, it was a lot of fun. And then the kids came around and one by one, they were called by their teacher and their teacher gave them a diploma and a little medal. And it was interesting with each, this is every year I've done it, they do the same thing when they call the child and have him walk across. 
they say what profession they want to be when they grow up, which is always an adventure, right? Like sometimes it's firemen, sometimes it's police officers, sometimes it's, I think there was one child who had like, he had four professions. He couldn't decide which one he wanted to do. But, you know, there's always, it's always interesting to see what kids, what dreams they hold. And I sat in the back and I listened and watched all these kids come across. And I just had in my head, man, could you imagine if two-thirds of those kids, which is about the proportion 19 children, we had about 30 that graduated, two-thirds of those kids never made it out of elementary school. It breaks my heart. I'm going to speak a little bit about guns, but I hope you'll give me the benefit, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, of hearing me out. I'm not a gun owner. Never had any desire to be one. They weren't in my home growing up. My, my father served in the Navy, so he certainly was trained and knew how to use firearms, but um, he passed away when I was young, and to my knowledge, I don't even think we had a firearm in the house when, when I was growing up. The only weapon we had was a ceremonial sword that was you know, part of his Navy uniform that was on the wall. And my brother and I so wanted to take that down and play with it, but we never did. We knew it was off limits. <clears throat> that was the only weapon that existed in my home growing up. I did sometimes go and over to friends' house and, you know, like shoot BB guns, like that kind of stuff. We couldn't have a BB gun, but my friend did, and, and we got in trouble with that. And, and, I had, and I had friends that, you know, as I grew up, that were loved hunting. It was part of their family tradition. And I even went hunting occasionally with them, although I don't think I ever successfully shot anything. But I, I, I was close enough to that, to see the family tradition, you know, the child passing down that tradition to their, to, or parent passing that down to their child or grandparents to grandchildren. My best friend from high school, he still makes an annual trip home to my hometown and they go with his family out to the hunting lodge and, you know, he posts pictures of it on Facebook. Like, I, I get it's an important tradition. It's just not one that I was ever part of. And I also know people who have sidearms, uh, things for their own protection, their own safety. I've especially known a few women who've experienced abuse and trauma and for whom that gun is an important feeling of protection, you know. So I, I get that. But, but on the whole, here's kind of been my attitude up until this point, which is I'm not really a guns advocate either way because that's kind of one less fight I need in my life. Have you ever felt like that? Like, I just don't need the fight, so I never said anything one way or the other. But there's something about a shooting at a school that pierces through that apathy. And so I speak today not as an activist or an advocate, but as someone who's wrestling with responsibility and asking the question, what responsibility do I have as your pastor? What responsibility do I have as a citizen? What responsibility do we all have? When the media talks about responsibility, they usually imply guilt, right? Like, who's responsible for this? Beyond the gunman, was it his friends, his family, Facebook, people who knew he was going to buy guns? Was it the seller of the automatic weapons that he had? Was it the, you know, the, the teacher who propped open the door? Was it the police who delayed entering in because they were afraid? Was, was it the, the, the lobbyists? Was it the politicians and policymakers? Like, who's to blame? And I get that we have to do this kind of autopsy, but I just 
I feel like sometimes we just end up pointing the finger here, there, every which way until everyone's to blame and no one's responsible. And I don't want to ask the question, so who's guilty? What I want to ask the question is, what responsibility do we each have now going forward to make sure this doesn't continue? It's what Bob asked us at the very beginning of the service. A couple years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, Seth and I preached a series called Seek Ye First about the intersection of politics and kingdom. You know, and, and, and one of the sermons I preached in that, in that stretch was I preached on rights and responsibilities. And I just acknowledge that in our country, the discourse is often around rights. But when you read the Bible, rights is not a gospel value. You just don't ever see it held up, individual rights in scripture. Wherever they talk about rights, like the apostle when he talks about, apostle Paul when he talks about his rights as an apostle, it's to lay them down for the sake of others. The Bible doesn't really talk about rights. What the Bible does talk a lot about is responsibility, especially in the Old Testament. You know, what are we responsible? He has shown you, immortal, what is good and what is required of you to walk humbly, to, to act justly, to love compassion and mercy. Like that's it. That's our responsibility. The Bible spells it out again and again. Here's your responsibility for your neighbor for the least of these, for the vulnerable in society. The Bible is clear, we all bear responsibility. And so I've been kind of reflecting about it. And I thought, here's three simple responsibilities that I think we all have as citizens. And the first responsibility is this, that we need to be informed. I mean, there's a lot of information out there but it's all coming to the surface right now. We need to get informed. Did you know that this was the 27th school shooting this year? 27 times someone has pulled a gun on school property or on a school bus and shot someone else. 27 times. Did you realize it's the 212th mass shooting in our country this year? And by mass shooting defined as four people or more were injured or killed by gunfire. Well, I mean, those numbers kind of boggle the mind. And if you want to go deeper, you can get informed about like what local legislation is, like what's, what are our laws in Indiana, what we can and can't do legally, but also what's the legislation, the proposals that are being put out there. I mean, what is required to make a universal background check necess- you know, possible, and what, what are the loopholes that need to be closed? What about assault weapons, which is what the shooter in Uvalde had? Like, what's their impact on mass shootings? And, and you know, did you know from 94 to 2004, they were banned in our country, but then it, that ban expired. And so do you know what's happened to crime since then? Like, and I could tell you some of these stats, but I would much rather you go and look at them. Find out on your own how many of our police officers have been killed by assault ban- weapons. I mean, go look at that. Statistics. I highly recommend the John Hopkins Center for Gun Violence. It's a pretty nonpartisan site, just gives you a lot of information, and it's all right there on their website. First responsibility are you informed? And I confess, a week ago, I was not informed. Not at all. Like I said, it was kind of one of those bones I didn't want to you know, pick. I didn't want to fight. I didn't have a dog in the fight. You know what I'm saying? We can't do that. We've got to get informed. Second responsibility I think we have 
is we have to engage in dialogue with one another and humbly listen to viewpoints other than our own. Because once you get armed with information, you know what you want to do? You want to go out and say, did you know this? Did you know this? Did you know this? Like, you know, like we're experts, right? And then you can put people in their place, especially on Facebook. Facebook is so bad about doing that kind of stuff, right? But I, the next step after you get informed is to try to think, well, what perspectives have I not heard? Who have I not been listening to? How do I get outside my own echo chamber, my own foxhole, if you will, in order to hear a perspective of someone who thinks differently about this. We've had dialogues in our church over the last three, four years around race, around LGBTQ inclusion. And every time we have these dialogues, I mean, each, each one of them, you know, over 100 people have participated. And, and what they're designed to do is to create safe spaces for us to hear viewpoints other than our own, to expand our minds, challenge our thinking, but also clarify what we think and feel as well in response. And I'm just saying, maybe we probably need to do that for other, for, for gun violence and other hot button political topics, because we have to work to build friendship with those who disagree with us. I think that's a lost art in today's society. And, and, and we're paying the price for it because we don't, we've, we've lost the ability to make friendships across the aisle. And we have to find common ground. Because I think there is common ground. Like all of us agree, schools should be safe. So let's start where we agree. Let's start with what we, what we all hold together and work towards making that possible. It only happens when we listen humbly and we make dialogue with those across the spectrum. So first we get informed. Next we listen with humility. And the last thing is we have to act. We got to do something. And there's lots of things you can do. You can call an elected representative, call their office, share with them your viewpoints, your feelings. You can support organizations that reduce gun violence in our city. There's lots of them. Or support our police officers and the work they do in the city to kind of keep things safe. You can work to address root causes of gun violence, addressing poverty, education, mental health, Every single one of us can do something. What is it God's calling you to do? What's the, the, the nudge that if just a little bit or a step of faith that God is asking you to do? Because I think if all of us were to do those three things, if we were to try to inform ourselves, if we were to listen humbly to those who hold different opinions than our own, and if we were to act with compassion to address the problems of our world, the world would become a better place. And I would simply add to those three things. I think those are things that all citizens should do. But I would add, as, as citizens of God's kingdom, of the church, we have a responsibility for the least of these. We have a responsibility for those who can't protect themselves. We have a responsibility for children. Jesus said, woe to the person who harms one of these little ones. It'd be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the river. Jesus advocated for children. He advocated for the least of these. 
And he calls us as his people on earth to do the same. As Forrest Gump said, that's all I have to say about that. So done with my political talk. The rest of my time, I just want to talk about what I think is the, the deeper question I've sensed some people asking, which is when tragedies like this happen in our world, where's God? And what responsibility does God have? How could a good God allow something like this to happen? I mean, the juxtaposition of it's the end of the school, all the celebration that happens, you know, when kids are getting ready for the end of school, and how could God allow this to take place? And that's a deep and complicated question. It kind of gets to the core of what religion is about. How do we find God when it hurts? When I was fresh out of seminary, I was a chaplain at UNC Hospitals. And for most of that time, for about a year of my time there, I was a pediatric chaplain. So I was oncology, cardiology, pediatrics, NICU, neonatal intensive care unit, and PICU, pediatric intensive care unit. Those were my units. And it was probably, I would just say, it was a roller coaster for my faith. Because on the one hand, you have these amazing examples the children gave you of like their resilience, their joy, the hope. I mean, the faith of these families, like those were the highs. But whenever you lost a child, it would destroy you. Those were the lows. And one of the things we did on all the units I served is when a child died, we would give to the families a grief book, something to kind of help them through the next six months. And as part of that grief book, we would record in it the handprints and footprints of their deceased child. And so that was one of my jobs as a chaplain, that I would go into hospital rooms where a child had just passed away, and the nurse would ink up their hands and feet, and I would press them into this book. And there was one particular case that really rocked me. I mean, I was angry just flat-out angry at God. And as I was taking the handprints and the footprints, I don't know why, but this image came into me. I felt like I was collecting evidence against God. I had this vision of like the final judgment, not as God judging us, but as us putting God on trial and saying, God, where were you? during all these bad things that happened in the world, and I could picture all these handprints and footprints being admitted as evidence against God. I told you I was in a dark place. But somehow in my prayer times during that year, at one point I reminded, or I imagined, how God might respond. And I thought, well, if God's going to respond to that kind of anger, that kind of hurt, then I imagine what God would do is to pull out his own handprints and his own footprints of his deceased son with his hands pierced and his feet pierced for our transgressions. And he would simply say, I know. And he'd cry. He'd weep with us and we'd cry and cry and cry until all the tears washed us clean. 
It's not the most biblical view of the final judgment. But I think it speaks to the fact that God knows every hurt. That when Jesus went to the cross, he bore on the cross every heartache that ever was and every heartache that ever will be. He carried our pain and our sin all the way to Calvary. And the good news that we celebrate as Christians is the story didn't end there because on the third day, he rose again. And he sitteth now at the right hand of the Father. And from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. See, our story is that Jesus is coming again someday. And when he comes again, he will mend every heart. He will right every wrong. He will take this broken world and put it back the way God always intended it to be. And with this hope, we purify ourselves because it becomes our beacon, our light, that towards which we forever live and journey. That's the picture. That's the hope to which we cling. So where is God? God is with us. He is with those who suffer. He is with those who are hurting. He's with every single person who brings hope. And and I believe, strangely enough, that God is even with those who are disturbed in heart and mind, working always and everywhere to bring peace and redemption. A friend with me shared a Facebook post. I left it over my phone over here, so excuse me one moment. And I want to close with this. It's always scary when you say, I want to close with a Facebook post, by the way. But this is from a man named Sean Dietrich. And this is maybe perhaps a more hopeful view of the afterlife. 19 kids came romping up the golden staircase, taking two steps at a time, sprinting toward the mother of pearl gates, It's a wonder they didn't knock St. Peter over onto his blessed assurance. The children all smelled like little kids' sweat, stinky feet. Their loud footsteps could be heard echoing from as far away as the Andromeda galaxy. And the children were accompanied by two teachers. Slow down, yelled Mrs. Garcia, 48, who headed up the rear of the class. Ms. Garcia taught at Robb Elementary School for 23 years. She died using her body to shield her students from gunfire. She was found with students still cradled in her arms. And two days after the attacks, her grief-stricken husband passed from a massive heart attack. No pushing, hollered Miss Morellas, 44, who was close beside Miss Garcia. I'm not going to tell you twice. Miss Morellas taught fourth grade. She was trained in special education. She taught for 17 years. Her children idolized her. She was the woman responsible for integrating students with developmental disabilities into regular classrooms at Rob. She too leapt in front of gunfire for her students. The children's voices were loud. They brought so much energy into the celestial space that crowds of seraphim began to gather at the gates until their feathers ruffled. The kids from Evalde, Texas are here, the angels were murmuring among themselves. 
Everyone up here has been expecting these tiny celebrities, of course. These kids have been on everybody's minds. The boss himself is a huge fan of these kids. They say he's been waiting at the gate for their triumphant arrival since 3 million BC. And here they came. The doors opened, their little faces burst through the hallway of life into, out, into life everlasting. And all eternity cheered. It was an immortal roar so loud it shook planets from their orbits, knocked the rings right off of Saturn. Among the new arrivals was Jose Flores, 10. Jose's the baseball lover. He had just received an honor roll certificate a few hours before the shooting. And there was Uzziah Garcia, nine. Uzziah's crazy about football. He can catch any pass you throw at him. Amory Joe Garza, she turned 10 a few weeks ago. She's a jokester and loves art. She too was on the honor roll. Xavier Lopez, 10, known for his sense of humor. He loves dancing. Before the shooting, he was looking forward to school letting out for summer so he could go swimming. Annabelle Rodriguez, 10, and Jackie Cazares, 10, they're cousins. They're the ones holding hands. And Rogelia Torres, 10, he's a whip-smart little boy. His face could light up entire continents. Elihana Torres, 10, a softball phenom. She was looking forward to playing in the final softball game of her season on Sunday. And Jaila Siguero, 10, she loved making videos for her friends. The night before the shooting, she said she didn't want to go to school the next day. Jace Luevanos, 10. Before he died, every morning he would wake up and make his grandparents a pot of coffee. The family dog was obsessed with him. Ellie Garcia, 9. Her favorite colors are pink and purple. She enjoys cooking and makes a mean chalupa. Nevea Bravo, 10. Her name is Heaven, spelt backwards. This place was made for her. And Lexi Rubio, 10. She loves sports. She received a good citizen award shortly before the shooting. She wanted to become a lawyer someday. McKenna Elrod, 10. Blonde, loves gymnastics, dancing, and singing. Wild about animals. Alethea Ramirez, 10. Enjoys art, is very good at painting. A ray of sunlight in a dark world. Layla Salazar, 10. Each morning when her father drove her to school in his pickup, he played Sweet Child of Mine on the radio. Layla knew all the words. And Tess Mata, 10. She was saving up a container of her dollar bills for the family's upcoming trip to Disney World. When the boss saw them, he called each of their names, each one of them. And his voice was so loud that time was halted and mountains crumbled. The kids ran straight for him. He squatted low and threw his arms open. Nineteen nine and ten-year-olds piled straight onto him and plowed him over. They crawled all over him. His laughter was thunder. His tears were hurricanes. His joy burned brighter than the sun itself. His sorrow was the Arctic Ocean. Welcome home, he said. And his words split the foundations of heaven and earth in two. This world just won't be the same without them.